Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't had a chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of our community this morning. So today is kind of part two to last week's sermon. So uh, that means two things. One, if you missed last week, I'd highly encourage you to grab the podcast. You can kind of hear the full explanation of what we looked at last week and, and kind of uh, just, yeah, you can hear full explanation. So uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, here is that sermon in two minutes or less. So uh, last week we started in Genesis chapter 12. And in that text, we saw where God makes a promise to his servant Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and I'm going to bless this nation. The whole world is going to be blessed through this nation. And and to show Abraham how serious God was about this promise that he was making to him, uh, God enters into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And so he looked at at this process of, of God making this covenant, entering into this covenant with Abraham. And we talked about how, like similar to, to contracts today, there were different parts of the covenant. There were parties that were entering into it. Okay, God and Abraham. There were requirements that were, uh, were to be given, that, that uh, Abraham would be faithful to the Lord and the Lord would be faithful to Abraham. And then there was uh, the, the penalty section, right? Like the curses. If you broke the covenant, this is what you uh, should expect to happen to you. And in Genesis 15, we saw how, how it was kind of enacted, where if you broke the covenant, what, what the, the punishment or the penalty would be death. And so uh, we saw in Genesis 15 how they enacted that, but what we, the hope in Genesis 15 was that God demonstrated to Abraham that he would be the one to bear the punishment. If Abraham or if his descendants broke the covenant, God showed and demonstrated that he would willingly take that penalty upon himself, uh, that he would take that curse upon himself. And so in that way, God graciously gives to Abraham, gives to his descendants all the blessing, all the reward, all the benefits of being in the covenant, and then God takes the penalty and the curses on himself if Abraham or if any of his descendants break, were to break that covenant. So we looked at that in Genesis 15, and then we saw how it was ultimately fulfilled in and through Christ on the cross, how Christ was the one who, who suffered death that should have been to us. God took that on himself, paid the price to satisfy the broken covenant, made a way for forgiveness of sins, and for us to find life and hope and forgiveness uh, in, in the Lord. And so uh, we saw the promise in Genesis 15, we saw the fulfillment of it uh, w- with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And, and the thread that connected all those texts together was this question. Do you believe in the faithfulness of God? Do you believe that God is faithful to keep his promise? Do you believe that God is faithful to keep his word? These fa- the promise that he made in Genesis 15 that he would keep it. Do we believe that God truly honors his word in, in making a way for us to enjoy the blessings of the covenant? Also, do we believe in his faithfulness so that we can live in the confidence of the grace and forgiveness that he gives to us as well when we trust in him? And so the core question last week that we, that we asked was, do you believe in the faithfulness of God? And the reason today is, is, is this uh, part two, if you will, is because we're kind of expanding that question to be this. Do you trust God's faithfulness amidst the confusion of your life? Do you trust God amidst the confusion in your life? Because there are times where that happens, right? We can't make heads or tails of life where we're confused about uh, what's going on. Maybe it's heartache. Maybe it's tragedy. Uh, maybe it's good things, right? Maybe you're trying to figure out school or job or, or, or whatnot. Or, or maybe, hey, just life gets weird, right? Like relationships are getting weird or family members. And it's just, God, I, I don't know what you're asking of me. Um, I, I don't understand why you want me to walk through this. And so there's confusion. What's God's will in my life? What does he want me to do? How is he calling me to follow him? And so do you trust God amidst the confusion 
in your life. Because it turns out it was quite the promise that God made to Abraham to make him the father of a great nation. And really kind of a confusing promise. Because when God makes that promise to Abraham, he was 75 years old. And he and his wife Sarah did not have any children. And so the promise is made at 75. But then God doesn't fulfill the promise until Abraham turns 100. So two and a half decades later, um, two and a half decades, Abraham wondering, okay, God, you made this promise. Now what's happening Two and a half decades of of maybe confusion about, is God going to honor it? And why is he waiting so long? And what am I supposed to be doing in the meantime? Two and a half decades of of, of an empty home, longing for that child. You know, constant reminders that that, that this hasn't come to fruition. And so no doubt they they carry that longing, that sense of of expectancy. This is like a train wreck. Is he going to get it? Um, Two and a half decades of of, of, of hope. There we go. Of hope uh, that this will be fulfilled. And so could you imagine the joy uh, that that would come when, when, when Isaac is born? That, that finally, that this, this promise has been fulfilled. And so I, I just imagine what a, what a good season of life that must have been for Abraham and Sarah. Uh, having Isaac in the home, uh, you know, his name means laughter. Hearing that laughter in the home, hearing that joy in the home that, that perhaps they'd been longing for for so long. And so maybe, maybe, just maybe, they start to be like, okay, this is what God was doing. They understand now, because it's quite the promise at 75, quite the miracle at 100, right? And so, like, they're seeing the, the glory of God, the provision of God, the miraculous nature of God, that he would allow them to have a child. And so maybe it was a, a couple of years of, of, I get it, I understand how God was working, I understand how God was moving. And so maybe they understand the plan and provision that God has, has, has had in their life. But then, then Genesis 22 happens. And, and the, the confusion is going to set in in Genesis 22. Because in Genesis chapter 22, God asked of Abraham what would be too much to ask of any father. Because God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as you're making your way there, let me just say this. This is a hard text. This is a hard text confusing text. All right, this is the, the type of text where like, okay, if somebody told us, hey, God's told me to sacrifice my son, we'd be like, let's call the cops, let's call DHS, and let's, you know, commit you in the psych ward, right? Like we would, we'd probably have those, that reaction, and yet here this story is in the text of this interaction with the Lord, and it's just, it's, it's confusing from start to finish uh, about how, how can Abraham trust and, and obey and respond in the manner in which he did. And so, and to that end, I think it's a great text for us, and how how do we? How do we respond? How do we trust God amidst confusion in our life? Okay, so just know this. This is probably one of those sermons where it's going to create more questions than answers for you. But in some ways, I think that's healthy because when we have those questions, those are all paths of our discipleship. Okay, God, help me to ask those. Help me to pursue those. And, and he can grow us in so many of those different ways. Okay, so fair enough. So Genesis 22 is just, it's a hard text, but it's one uh, that, that teaches in so many different ways. I, I think part of the confusion comes from the very first verse. uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. So that verse right there, somebody would be like, hold up, God's testing him? Uh, Why would God test Abraham? So first thing, notice it's test, not tempt. Okay, Satan tempts man to rebel. Satan tempts man to fall away. He he tempts us to discourage us and make us uh, fall and, and, and jettison our faith. God will test us, and there are different seasons of testing of our faith to help us 
understand the measure of our faith. Because to, to, think about what a test does, right? When we, go, when we have any type of test, even a school test, not fun while it's happening. Um, but at the end of it, we can see areas of growth, areas of weakness, areas of strength. And so in this, when God goes to test Abraham, it's going to reveal to Abraham, because God knows everything, it's going to reveal to Abraham really the true nature of his faith. And that's what happens when we walk through maybe a season of testing of our faith. We can't lie or mislead ourselves anymore. Okay, this is the faith that I have in the Lord and who he is and what he's doing in my life. And so in a similar way, uh, this test is going to come to Abraham and it's going to help Abraham uh, himself know more his devotion and, and trust and hope and faith that he places in the Lord. So, uh, so the Lord calls out to Abraham, Abraham replies, and now here comes the request and here comes uh, the testing. Verse 2, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Okay, let me say this. Abraham uh, had another son through one of his servants, um, and, and, and he, he loves that son. Uh, but this one is the only son that's a result of the promise that Abraham has with Sarah. And sometimes when I read that verse, I kind of butchered a little bit. Abraham loves his family. Um, but God is acknowledging, uh, that, acknowledging the son that's come through the promise, and God is also acknowledging the love that Abraham has for him. So God knows exactly what he's asking of, of Abraham in this moment. I want you to take your son— this, your, your son that you love so deeply and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And that's no small detail that he would be sacrificed as a burnt offering. See, a burnt offering was a sacrifice, and we, we see it throughout uh, in, in multiple different places in the Old Testament. A burnt offering was a sacrifice that was made to appease God's wrath over your sin. Okay, so you sin against God, and, and you're, you're trying to, to show that you're aware of your sin, aware of your guilt, trying to make it right. And so you would, you would sacrifice an animal back to God that would turn his wrath uh, over your sin towards favor. The theological term for that is propitiation. Uh, propitiation, right? It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath eventually until it turns towards God's favor. Removing the penalty and restoring the blessing. And so... I mean, just think about that, right? So God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, which is hard enough. Hard enough, all right? That's already gut-wrenching enough. You're wanting me to sacrifice my son. And oh yeah, it's because of burnt offering for your sin. All the ways you've fallen, all the ways you've, you've fallen short, all the ways that, that you've messed up. Okay, now it's going to cost your son his life. Sacrifice your son as a burnt offering back to me. And so just the questions would have to abound for Abraham. Like this, okay, this, this, this doesn't make sense. It goes against what I know about you. goes against the promise that we talked about in Genesis 15, where God's saying, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one to, to, to pay the price. And so this just doesn't make sense for Abraham for, to be getting this type of request from the Lord. I mean, much less, you've promised me descendants as numerous as the stars. How's that going to work if I kill the first one? Like, I mean, he has to have those questions, right? He's, he's human. He's a father. He's devoted to his son. And so you know he has to have all those questions in his head and his heart about who God is and what God's asking him to do. And is this something that I'm really supposed to be doing? And so you know he has to, ha has to be asking those questions. Now, we don't have them recorded in the text. The only thing that we have recorded in the text is his action. Look at it in verse 3 and 4. Early the next morning... Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him uh, two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. It says, early the next morning. 
Okay, there, there, there's, there's so many different ways that you could, you could talk about these two verses, and I, I think really so many of them bear weight and hold truth. Like, may, maybe you've heard a sermon before about early the next morning. There's no delayed obedience here, right? Abraham's up. This shows how obedient he is to the Lord, that he immediately moves to act on this. And, and to be sure, that's there, I mean, because he gets up and he obeys this command of the Lord. It, it also shows the, the measure of Abraham's faith. Uh, that he's trusting in the Lord in this and through this, and we're really going to kind of flesh that out the rest of this morning. But I also think there's another element to this story that we don't talk about a lot, and that is that this action, the immediacy of Abraham's response, could be indicating a familiarity with the practice. Okay, now that just made a bunch of eyes look up at me, all right? And it should. Now, at this point in Scripture, we have no indication or, or no reference of any, uh, any human sacrifice, certainly no child sacrifice. Yet Abraham's, the immediacy of his obedience, there's no pushback, there's no, hey, what's up, there's no, uh, th- there's no questioning back, kind of indicates that, that this uh, child sacrifice or like, you know, why is this even a thing? God, like there's no, none of those questions. So it kind of gives an indication that this was, was not a new notion of child sacrifice. And it wasn't for Abraham because in the land where Abraham is living, child sacrifice was a normal worship practice of the false god Baal. As a fertility god uh, that, that cities and, and, and civilizations would, as part of their worship to Baal, would sacrifice a child towards him. Now let's just think about that for a second. What, how do you get to that point? How do you get to that point? So like, say, say you're uh, a, a farmer and you've, you've, you've got your crops and, and, and your life depends on, on having a good harvest and you start to see that sun and rain and all that has an impact on them. And so like, well, maybe there's, there's the gods that are controlled this. So I need to show my appreciation to these gods to make sure that I have a good harvest. And so you set aside a portion of your harvest, but then a storm comes and wipes them out. Well, maybe I didn't give enough. So let me set back some more crops, but then a drought comes. Well, then maybe I really didn't give enough. Maybe I need to show that I'm really devoted to this false god. And so you sacrifice an animal and then another storm hits. Well, then maybe, maybe that's not enough. Maybe I need to show just how that I'll, I'll sacrifice the thing that I hold most dear towards him. Or we as a city, as a town, we'll show how much we're devoted. And so we'll pick a family and ch- pick a kid, and then that'll be who we sacrifice. And so just like with that quick abbreviated telling, right, you can see how um, the imaginations of our mind coupled with the darkness of our heart can lead to such a wicked expression of, of child sacrifice. And so, but yet this was a common practice among many early civilizations. And so when, when Abraham hears this request of the Lord, he's like, okay, well, this happens to worship to all these other false gods. I guess I have to show uh, that I am just as committed to the one true God as these are to these false gods. And so immediately the next morning he gets up and goes to obey. But still, it doesn't remove the, God, this is different from what I know about you, this is inconsistent with what I know about you. This runs counter to Genesis 15. This runs counter to what you've promised me. I just, I, like, all those questions would have to still be there for Abraham. E- even, even, with, even with setting out to go into this place of sacrifice. And we see that he gets up and he travels and he goes to this region of Moriah. You're familiar with this region. Um, if you have, like, if I say Jerusalem and you picture Jerusalem, like the Golden Dome of the Rock and the Temple Mount, that's Moriah. And so that's where Abraham was headed. That's where this story takes place. And, uh, and, and so Abraham travels for three days to get to Moriah. Imagine those three days. Those three days traveling with your son, 
those three days knowing that it could be your hand that takes his life. Those three days traveling with your son, trying to, trying to savor that time that you have with him. Those three days trying to make sense of this request that God has given to you. Those three days trying to understand your obedience to it. Like, I mean, I just couldn't imagine those three days of walking step, putting one foot in front of another. Going to this place of where the sacrifice is going to be. But I think in verse 5, I think in verse 5, we, we do get a bit of insight into Abraham's thinking or into his heart or into his faith that could have helped him uh, put one foot in front of the next. Because look at this in verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will worship and then we will come back. Abraham is already holding on to this hope. This is not going to end in death. There's going to be life here. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how this is going to play out. But this is going to end up. We're going to worship and we are going to come back to you. Now let me hit just a couple notes on Isaac. And then we're going to come back and continue with Abraham. At, uh, the, the, the word for boy that's used to describe Isaac in and around Genesis 22. Uh, the Hebrew word for it is um, one that has a loose translation in regards to age. It could be anywhere from an infant to uh, of military age, 18 to 20 years old. And given how long Abraham's kind of lived in this area, most scholars believe that Isaac's age ranges anywhere from age 13 to 20. Um, when I'd heard this story before, I'd always kind of had the impression that maybe he was five, six, seven years old. Um, but, but no, most agree that he's at, into his teenage years, and, and many believe that he actually could be in his young 20s when this is happening. Okay, so if, if he's that old, he could get away. <laughs> like, like, he could outrun uh, his dad, right? He could, he could flee. And, and so this story shows the willingness of Isaac to let his 100-year-old-plus father do what he's going to do. And so this story is just as much about Isaac's willingness to obey his father's plan as it is about Abraham's faith in the provision and the faithfulness of God. Okay, so we, we see that this is a joint act of worship between Abraham and Isaac. But also, I mean, with, with Isaac being that, that old, like I just think of all the years that Abraham's had with Isaac, all the first, right, the first steps, the first, like just all of that. And now, again, he's going to this place of sacrifice and having to, to, to just come to grips with this is what God's asking and this is what I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. And so like, uh, how, 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 how? Right? Like, like how, can he, how can he do this? And we, but yet we see this, we see this statement of faith. We will worship and we will come back to you. And I think this is where we see um, trust in the character of God amidst the confusion. Trust in the character of God amidst the confusion is what's enabling Abraham to take the next step. Because, because that, that's we see in this trust that, that God is somehow going to make this right. Even if he can't understand. And the, the author of Hebrews speaks into this as well. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 through 19. Uh, the author is describing Abraham's faith. And he says this. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. 
Okay, so it's we will worship and we will come back. Even if God's going to bring him back from the, from the dead or it's not going to end in death, I'm trusting that God is going to come through here somehow, some way. He's, he's trusting that God is going to work in and through this situation. And again, I, I think he, and the, the reason that he can have that trust is because he's trusting in the character of God. And, and where I see that in this text is when he says, we will go and worship. Okay, what's, what's one of the things that we do when we worship? When we gather to worship the Lord, you know, whether it's through song or whether we're reading God's word, we're understanding more of who he is, his nature, his attributes, and his character. God, we're we're praising you for your love, praising you for your grace, for your mercy, that you are holy, that you are righteous. So when we worship, our focus, our mind focus, our heart focus, it's on the character of God. And in this moment, that's all Abraham has. Can't make sense of what's being asked of me. Can't make sense of what God's walking me through, how this is testing. But I'm banking on the character of God. And in the midst of his confusion, he's trusting in God's character. Enough to where he can put one foot in front of the other. And as he does, it's leading him towards the place of sacrifice. And then after the three days of, of, of traveling, he gets the question that you know Abraham has been dreading to get. Uh, verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Hoping you weren't going to notice. <laughs> like, I mean, that's a... I mean, that question, where's the lamb for the, for, for the sacrifice? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? The, the, the question that Isaac has asked, right, is where's the sacrifice? What is the sacrifice? What is it that's going to, to make this right with God, that's going to reconcile? What's the sacrifice that makes it where we're not in conflict with the Lord anymore? Where is the lamb? And Abraham's response is one verse that practically summarizes the entirety of Scripture. Look at verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. God himself will provide the lamb. Man, there, there's no hesitation. There, there's, no, um, there's no wavering. There, there, there's, there's just, it's with resolution, Abraham declares God himself is going to provide the sacrifice. Now, bear in mind, he's walking Isaac to the place of sacrifice, Right? Like he's kind of thinking, I'm providing the sacrifice. But no, he says this statement with such certainty. Now, at the same time, okay, again, Abraham's human. So I don't need to make him out to be just like this superman of faith. But also like, I read that and there's part of me that's like, okay, is he saying this for Isaac or is he saying this for himself? Because <laughs> there's some times where I have to give myself the pep talk, right? Where I have to like, okay, this is what I know about God. This is what I know about God here. And so I can't make sense of everything else. I'm just going to say to myself what I know about who God is and what he's done in my life. And he's promised me in Gen- for Abraham, he's promised me in Genesis 15 that he is going to, to be the one to, to, to walk this for us. That he's going to be the one to pay the penalty. That he's going to be the one that, that, that pays the penalty for when it's broken. And so God himself is going to provide the sacrifice. And so he says this statement, and, and, they, and they continue on. And then both of them reach the place where, where this is going to happen. Uh, when they reach the place, uh, sorry, didn't do exactly. Well, that's fine. When they reach the place uh, that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. How, how much love 
and devotion and obedience is Isaac showing to his dad at that point in time? Again, letting this 115, 120-year-old man time up, put him on the altar. So again, joint act of worship between Isaac and Abraham in this place. And then we see a result of both of their worship, both of their faith and trust. Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. How much... How much do you think Abraham was longing to hear from God in that moment, right? Like he's got the knife, he's bringing it up. Abraham, Abraham, yes. Like, like yes, speak. I'm wanting to hear from you. This doesn't make sense. What you're asking me to do, I'm confused by all of it. So please, tell me anything. Like, I'm game, right? And God says, don't kill your son. Don't do this. I'm not like these other false gods, then entice and lead and, 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 and twist people into, into doing this. This does not, please, this is not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not like these other gods. And know this, like this, this gives us the story of God's progressive revelation to mankind. Okay, so from, from, from start to finish, God is progressively revealing to his creation attributes of himself, right? We see God's power, God's might, God's sovereignty over all creation. We start to see his holiness and his righteousness through so much of the Old Testament. We see grace and mercy in the Old Testament as well. We see that throughout the New Testament. So you see along the way this progressive revelation of who God is to, to humanity. And in Genesis 22, is it, is, it is a defining moment that God is, is showing, I am not like these other false gods. This is something that, that the, these, these, the, the imaginations of mankind lead them to express this sinister type of worship, these false gods. This is not something that I'm asking you to do because I am the Lord and I will provide the sacrifice. I, I, I will provide. God himself provides this, uh, this ram to be used in place of Isaac. And so what we see in this is another I- example in Scripture of a sacrificial death in place of someone else. The theological term here is substitutionary atonement. Uh, something was substituted to atone for someone else's sin. And so here God himself is providing the lamb to be the substitute for Isaac's death. One lamb sacrificed for one person, bringing death to the lamb, but bringing life to the one. John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he looks up, he sees Jesus, and he says, Look, the lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. Not the one, but the many. God himself providing the sacrifice in Christ to take away our sin. When we place our faith in him and trust him, that is the sacrifice that God made on our behalf. It's there we know our sins are taken away. So that means, that means we don't have to wonder, have we done enough? We don't have to fall in these traps of insecurity. I've got to give more and more and more and more. And maybe it's not crops that we're given, but maybe we think it's something else that we have to give, that we have to produce, that we have to toe the line. And so we don't have to let that take to the dark places of our heart, but we can trust and rest that, that we're not in conflict with God anymore, right? God himself has provided the sacrifice to atone our sin, to turn his wrath to his favor, to reconcile the relationship and to right our wrong. We can rest in that. We have hope in that. We have joy in that because of Christ doing this on our behalf. Isaiah 53 uh, describes this all the more. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each one of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Christ, the Lamb of God, takes our sin from us and takes our place. And, and, and what we see with Jesus is, is, is just like Isaac willingly allowed himself to be bound up in place on the altar out of devotion to his father's plan. Christ, out of devotion to his father's plan, willingly allows himself to go to the cross. Out of love for his father and out of his love for you and me, he allows that to happen to him so that he can be the sacrifice for our sins. But here's the hope of the Christian faith. It doesn't end with a death. It doesn't end with death, because three days later, Christ conquers the tomb, and and, and we see resurrection. We see new life. We see victory. We see life come out of what looks like certain death, and that happens here with Abraham and Isaac, doesn't it? That that, that happens here. The the ram is provided, and and Isaac Isaac walks away away from this. Uh, Let's read the end of the story, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous in the stars in the sky and as the sands of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So the angel once again confirms the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is like the third time it's being reiterated to him that God is is working, that God is going to honor his promise to bless Abraham, and then the world will be blessed through Abraham. And that happens. We saw it last week, right? Because Christ, born born, uh, of the nation of Israel, and Christ makes a way for any and for all who place their faith in him to to find forgiveness and hope and blessing uh, in and through Christ. And so we see God honoring the covenant that he makes with Abraham. And, and now, uh, from this day forward, like, again, I, I've tried to help us do this this morning, but I'm going to ask you one more time, put flesh and blood on this story. So imagine you're Abraham, and you've left this day, and maybe it's a week later, maybe it's six months later, maybe it's ten years later. What do you think of when you look at your son Isaac? What do you remember when you look at your son Isaac? Like, every, every time he sees Isaac, Isaac is a a reminder that he received Isaac back from the dead. Isaac is literally a living sacrifice. So every time he sees Isaac, it would be a reminder of the testament of God's provision. It would be a a reminder of the testament of God's character, of God's plan for the future. Hey, he's the child of the promise, and, and, and out of him and out of our descendants, it's going to bless the whole world. So Abraham and Isaac, from this point on, can live in full view of the mercy of God, grateful for the lamb that was provided, grateful um, for the character of God, that they can know and trust that God's character is different from any and all other false gods, because it is a character whom in their confusion they could trust in and allowed them to take the next step and allowed them to endure a season of their faith's testing. So let's bring it all the way back around to you and to me. Do you trust God amidst the confusion in your life? Do you trust God amidst the confusion in your life? Do you trust in God's character in the midst of your confusion?
Because there, there's so many times where we can have those questions, right? Like, God, what do you want me to do? How am I supposed to be walking through this? God, what's your will for me in this moment? We can have all those questions. But when we come back and we trust in God's character and we know, okay, God, this is who I, what I know about you. This is what I know who you are. This is what you've revealed yourself to be in your word. So in light of that, God, I know that I can trust you with my whole life. Even though I don't know what's going to happen when the alarm clock wakes up, when, when I wake up tomorrow. Even though I don't know what's going to happen when I walk in, into the job tomorrow. God, I can trust you here in with this. So I'm going to give all of my life to you, and my life is going to be for you and for your purposes. And as I do that, God, as I put one step in front of, one foot in front of the next, take one step after another, I know that along this, God, you'll be able to show to me what, what is your will is for my life. A synopsis of that past one minute is Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says this, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's character, okay, that's in view of God's grace, his love, his hope, in view of who God is, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In times of our confusion, we bank on the character of God, we trust in the character of God, and we offer our lives to him. That enables us to put one foot in front of the next one, enables us to take step after step. Even though, like, again, you might not be able to make sense of it in the moment. It might be confusing to you in the moment, but you'll know and you'll see and experience God giving you leadership and guidance in the moment and through the moment and be able to determine what's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. So we can come back and say, God, in view of your character, I'm going to offer all of me to you and to your purposes. So it's God, help me to then live as a living sacrifice, right? Help me to live as a living testimony about your grace, your mercy, your provision. So that means we're going to live in such a way to where others know um, uh, about the love of Christ, right? And where others know, yes, we've sinned, and there's nothing we can do to resolve that save trust in Christ and his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And, and when we do that, we discover life in, in him and in life to the full. And so it's us living our lives in such a way to help others know that worthy is the lamb, that God provided the sacrifice that died, but we with our lives, we provide the sacrifice that lives. And when we live in that, when we live out that sacrifice, it shows us trusting in God's character, even amidst the confusion, it helps us be able to determine and see what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So look, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what it is for you, and I'm like this, again, this is, this is one of those texts I said at the beginning, this is hard, hard text. Maybe you've got more questions than answers this morning, and, uh, and I'm going to say that's good. Because again, it, it starts a path of discipleship for us. It helps us go deeper into the text, deeper into, in, into who God is. And so I pray that begins to happen for you this morning as a result of this. But I pray that along the way, that as you study and push in, there's more revelation about God's character. Because when the confusion sets in, right, whether it's heartache or tragedy or good opportunity, whatever it might be, it's God help me to, in, in the, this emotional fog, in this confusion, this moment, God help me to come back to what I can bank on. And I can bank on you, your character, who you are. And that's what prompts me to offer my life as a living sacrifice to you. So that whatever happens in this, I'm devoted to you and I'm with my life a living testament to who you are and what you've done. I think it can give you uh, hope in the confusion. I think it can give you clarity in that moment. Um, and I think it can position us to continue to have our lives wrapped up in the purposes of God. 
So I pray uh, for you and for our church that in times of confusion, we come back and say, God, help us to bank on your character.